And I'm going to ask us to stand, and I'm going to ask us to read it together out loud, congregationally, as we begin this series of messages from the Beatitudes. I am using the King James translation because it captures the poetic beauty of this, and it is probably the version that many of us learned. So let us read this together because this is the word of the Lord. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Thank you. Please be seated. This well-known passage is the beginning of a famous discourse by Jesus, often known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this opening section is known as the Beatitudes. It's a series of eight blessings. Where does the word Beatitude come from? Well, it comes from the Latin Vulgate to the Bible. Each of these begins with the word beati, which was transliterated into English. They turned it into an English word, hence it became beatitude. The corresponding word in Greek, makorioi, carries the same meaning. And each of these beatitudes, each of these blessings, consists of two parts. There's the condition and there's the result. For example, the first of them, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The condition is that they are poor in spirit, and the result is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the format, that's the pattern that it follows. Together, these Beatitudes focus on a spirit of love and humility, and they reflect Jesus' teachings on matters such as mercy and compassion. Now, I'm going to actually not go in order in these. This is the first of a series of messages and I'm actually starting out in verse 9 today, and I'll explain why, where it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You might ask, why would I go out of order? Well, much like 2,000 years ago, today very much we live in a world in which we are just filled with so much disdain for one another, but Jesus sends us into the world as peacemakers. As difficult as things might be today, this is the world that we're ministering in. If we're going to be true to what Jesus said, we need to know what does it mean to be a peacemaker, and for that matter, what does it not mean? So I want to suggest to us, it doesn't mean that we're pacifists. It simply means we seek to reconcile different people and people groups whenever possible. If I think back to um, when I first became a young teacher, I was a, a real advocate for taking the study of music seriously. Some people called me a music education evangelist. And I suppose I was to some degree. And then about my 14th, 
15th year in the profession, I found myself essentially falling into the role of being coordinator of K-12 music. And now I had a coalition of people to keep together. Staff members with different priorities. For example, the choir teachers and the orchestra teachers didn't have exactly the same priorities, and their priorities weren't the same as the band teachers. And all three of them didn't have all the same priorities as the elementary music teachers. I needed to be a peacemaker. I needed to keep a coalition together that sometimes could fragment. And then I also needed to help it function in the context of a broader school district. At the time, almost 10,000 students in grades K through 12. I was no longer just an advocate for my school band. I now had to be a peacemaker amongst some very passionate groups of people. It was a job I did for 16 years, and to be honest with you, there were times I would describe it as being like dancing with an elephant. It can be done, but every now and then you're going to get stomped upon. But there were a lot of elements of that at work 2,000 years ago, and I think they're very appropriate as we draw this comparison and we say, what did Jesus mean by peacemakers? Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, let's dispel the the misconceptions here, okay? Peacemaking is not necessarily an absence of conflict. Peace in the Bible isn't always avoidance of any strife. You know, we don't run from strife. We don't put our head in the sand and hope it goes away because sometimes it only gets worse. Peacemaking is not just appeasing different views. Now, yes, negotiations sometimes have to take place. There's some give and take. But the big difference between negotiations and appeasing is appeasing basically is a form of a surrender. In my time as a leader in different roles, I've discovered, of course, you can't make everyone happy all the time. And so you seek what's in the best interest of the organization long term, so long as those are consistent with biblical principles. But now there's another word, not appeasement, but accommodation that we need to consider. Sometimes in the process of trying to bring people together, we will accommodate someone's request in a specific situation for a specific reason because it, it's the beginning of a conversation. It greases the skids for a greater purpose. It's different from appeasement, but those two terms are a part of peacemaking. Accommodation is a part of peacemaking. Appeasement probably is not. So when Jesus said... Blessed are the peacemakers. What did he mean? Well, a biblical peacemaker is somebody who's actively seeking to reconcile people with God and with each other. When we look at the word, those of you who are the the grammar Nazis in the room, you'll be familiar with the phrase, a compound word, meaning that it's peace and maker. But the portion of it that is peace, it comes from the Hebrew term shalom, which often was used as a greeting or a departing word. They would use it like we use hello or goodbye. When somebody who was a Jew said shalom to another person, they were wishing the full presence, peace, and blessedness of God. And we can find this in the famous benediction prayer from the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 6. You're familiar with it. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee And give thee what? Peace, Peace, of course. But it's important to remember in Scripture, peace is based on something. And I would suggest to us it's always based on justice and righteousness, where those two traits 
prevail, eventually we will have peace. But without those two, lasting peace isn't possible. You may have a temporary reduction of tension, but you don't have a, a lasting peace. Now, instead of pursuing all the beauty and the blessedness of God, some people, without realizing it, good folks, Christian believers, will pursue their comforts or their preferences. But Jesus points us to a greater goal, to a greater purpose. He was the model peacemaker, and he was prophesied 1,500 or so years before he even came. Isaiah 9, 6, famous passage. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, musical pronunciation, <laughs> wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the what? Prince of Peace. Now at Christmas, we know the passage from Luke 2.14. The angels announced Jesus' birth. They say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus pretty persistently said to, to sinners, as they left him, he said, go in peace. Shortly before he was crucified, John 14.27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now the very same Greek word, translated as peace, irinepolis, is used by the Apostle Paul to describe what God's done for us through Christ. Jesus is the only answer to bring peace into our hearts, our relationships, our churches, our nation, our world. Without Christ, there is no hope of a lasting peace in this life. That's why eternity is going to be a time of a lasting peace, because it's eternity in the presence of the very Prince of Peace. But we should not be naive about the difficulty of this calling we have. We're called to be peacemakers. It's not easy. It's not pretty. Those who seek to be peacemakers are often misunderstood. You've noticed I will sometimes quote letters from history. Here's another one of those. 1781, Ben Franklin wrote the following to John Adams. In a letter, in part, he said the following. Blessed are the peacemakers is, I suppose, for another world, because in this world they are frequently cursed. Unfortunately, there are people that when they read these words of Jesus, will kind of, they'll hear, blessed are the peacemakers, and they'll kind of smile a little bit, and they'll say, well... That's ideal, but Jesus didn't have to deal with some of the people in my life. <laughs> to my response is, oh, really? Now, you think about this. When Jesus was in his three-and-a-half-year ministry, he had quite a following. There were people who thought he was amazing. They weren't too sure about his miracles or claiming to be the Son of God, but he was a pretty popular figure until the leaders of the synagogues and the Pharisees found him so troubling, so threatening, that in the end they didn't just reject him, they demanded that he be put to death. And it wasn't just a simple execution. It had to be the most brutal, barbaric method that the Roman government reserved only for their worst criminals. So they take him before Pilate, the representative of the Roman government, and Pilate basically says, what crimes he committed? I don't find any fault with this man. And the response 
was they absolutely demanded that he be crucified because their spite for him was so great that they would rather set free a hardened, convicted criminal, Barabbas, rather than Jesus. So if you compare those people to the difficult people in your life, I don't think they compare. I mean, I've known some pig-headed, hard-nosed people, but they were softies compared to the folks that Jesus had to deal with. When he spoke of the challenges of peacemaking, he knew exactly what he was talking about. Yes, it is. Um, it's not easy. It's not tidy. <laughs> it's like crossing a fast-moving creek on slippery rocks. You fall and you get bruised sometimes. Sometimes you don't even make it across the creek. Sometimes it really is like dancing with an elephant. So what's the answer? We've described what it is and what it's not. What's the answer? Why would Jesus emphasize this so much? In so many places, not just here in the Beatitudes, but in all those different passages I quoted for you. Well, I would suggest to us Romans 12, 18 gives us one example. If it be possible, as much as it lieth with you, live peaceably with all men. We're to live at peace with everyone, but Paul includes that important phrase, as much as it lieth with you, if it be possible, right? Sometimes it isn't possible, at least not in that moment. There are individuals that we've met in life. At times we've been those individuals. We're just so contentious, people pick fights almost. We can't live at peace with people like that. It's a sad observation, but we can't be naive. Very often, we can agree to disagree on certain things. And certainly, God wants us to be bridge builders whenever possible. And I think those are the majority of the situations. The people who are just so contentious that no matter what, they want to fight. Those are rare. So how do we work out these bridges between people, people groups, or even just within our own families? Well, I'm going to give you several suggestions. These come from a pastor in South Carolina. His name is Ricky Zell. And the first one, the most neglected one, is we need to talk to God. We need to pray. When I'm going into a situation where I'm trying to basically calm a storm between people or different groups of people, I pray that God's going to show me what are the issues at stake. Let me see clearly. Remove my own blinders, because we all have them. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit helps me to see the deeper issues. But consider something. If you go into a relationship and you're trying to be a peacemaker between yourself and someone else, even if the other person is 95% at fault and you're only 5%, you still have to own your 5%. And quite honestly, in my life, it's rarely that skewed. It's a lot closer to being plenty of dirt that's been spread around. We need to own our portion of it. And yet I describe it like this. If it's a football field, you go up to the 50-yard line, you plant your feet on the 50-yard line, and you stretch as far down the field in their direction as you can. And you ask them to do the same. If they're pouting in the end zone, that's their problem. But don't let it be said that you haven't tried and haven't attempted to try to reach out. Next, we take the first step. Jesus is pretty clear on it when he was speaking 
about leaving sacrifices at the altar, at the temple. Matthew 5, verse 23 to 24. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. There's also the well-known passage from Matthew 18. It gives us an important principle. Jesus said, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And if he doesn't hear thee, then it gives us the next steps there in Matthew 18, where you go with a couple of others. If you still can't resolve it, then you bring it to the church, and by that I think I would interpret it to mean, you know, to some of the leadership of the church, to a group of people. And this is provided that this isn't something that has criminal or legal implications. If it's a dispute, let the church resolve it. It's better to be wronged than to go about creating all kinds of dissension. These are some of the Matthew 18 principles. The point is that we're to make the first move, okay? You might say, well, why? The other person is the one who wronged me. And I would say, well, Scripture says we're to make the first move. That doesn't mean we surrender. By the way, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a personal visit. It could be a letter or a phone call. It could even be a trusted third party that both sides have a certain amount of respect for. But the idea is we seek to resolve differences. That's an important principle. Our lives would be much happier and healthier if we followed that, now wouldn't it? But very often we let things fester inside. Jesus said we need to be peacemakers. And then part of that is we need to be honest with each other. You need to tell the other person how you feel about this issue, whatever form it takes. But keep in mind something that Solomon said. Proverbs 15.1 A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Be careful how we word what we say. Paul later wrote in Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. We need to remember these things when we are talking to the other person or people that we're trying to resolve a conflict with. Empathize with their situation. Consider that theirs is not yours. Emphasize reconciliation. Address the issue, not the person. Try to not make it personal. And then lastly, this is the hard one, because when we've been hurt, this is very difficult. We can't talk to other people about those who have hurt us. There's an old Spanish proverb. Whoever gossips of you will, whoever gossips to you, will gossip of you. There it is. Ouch, right? When we're doing the work of peacemaking, we should not say anything about another person that we have not said to them first. One of my longtime church members in Gaylord always said, if you can't say something nice about someone, don't say anything at all. So there's a great need for peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So let's answer the question to each of us this morning. Are you actively seeking to reconcile people to one another? To help put two people back on speaking terms? To restore unity within a family? To make amends with a Christian brother or sister where there has been a, a sense of brokenness of the relationship. Jesus' call to peacemaking gives us a must to it. 
And one of the musts is we have to have a solid understanding of human sin nature. Among the musts is we need to be a believer in Jesus Christ. We can't bring something to someone that we don't have. Peacemaking begins with an experience of peace in our own hearts. Secondly, Paul's letters. Paul's letters. He begins so many of them with common phrases, such as grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you look at his letters, it's consistent. It's always grace and peace. It's not reversed. It seems like grace always comes before peace. And my point is, we have to experience the grace of God before we really can experience the peace of God. We have to come into relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, before we truly are bringers of peace to others. We have to know peace ourselves before we can have peace in our relationships. This is one reason why appeasement and pacification are not true peace. Now, yes, there are times a show of good faith through accommodating a specific situation for a specific occasion can help be part of the broader solution. It can help keep a conversation going. But we shouldn't be naive about this. There was a phrase that I remember it was very popular in the 80s regarding our national defense. The phrase was peace through strength. And I do agree with that, but where does our strength come from? Our strength comes from God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Without that, there can never be a lasting peace. That's why in this life, there will always be wars and rumors of wars. In the presence of the Lord, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be eternal peace because there is the absence of sin, which is the root cause of all dissension. And friends, that's why, for this reason, the Lord is on a recruiting mission for people to be peacemakers. He's looking for men and women who will spread his word throughout their community. Because, you know, every town and every church needs people to be peacemakers. Why? Because every town and every church has people who tend to be complainers. And they sow the seeds of dissension. The question for each of us when it comes to peacemakers, are you one? That's the question that you have to ask yourself. Are you a peacemaker? So just a couple of final thoughts. Postscript. P.S. Like at the bottom of a letter. To be a peacemaker, according to the very words of Jesus, is something that is blessed. But remember earlier I compared that process with the idea of dancing with an elephant? Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room here. Let's try to address it. When Jesus says peacemakers are called the children of God, does this imply that people who are not peacemakers but are dissension makers? Does this imply that they are not children of God? I mean, we all know people like this, but if we're perfectly honest, each of us have moments when we have a tendency to be like that too, a lot more than we care to admit. To address this elephant in the room, each of us can be dissension makers at times. We need to be fully aware that this is an issue that we struggle with, even as saved born-again believers. Even in our walk of sanctification, the phrase often is that the old man still exists. Our sin nature is still there. We've been declared innocent, but we still struggle with it. You're familiar with the phrase, already and not yet. It's a theological term. It just reminds us we've been declared innocent. We've been 
called righteous, but we still struggle. We're still sinners. Martin Luther said we're sinner and saint at the same time. Simul justus et peccator. So I want to suggest to us that the elephant in the room is recognizing the root of all sin, the root of all dissension. What is that? I would say it's the tendency to let human pridefulness make our decisions for us, that that's at the root of all sin. Way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The problem is we want what we want. We want it when we want it. And if somebody prevents us from getting it, we tend to think of them as our enemy. The irony is, is that they could be among our best friends because they see something we don't see. They point out a blind spot that we don't know we have. But that's what happens when our eyes get off of Jesus and our eyes get on a preference or something that's our own comfort. Friends, as Christian believers who are on our daily walk of sanctification, we need to realize if we see a prideful and divisive spirit in someone else, the only way we can see that is because we have it in ourselves. Being a peacemaker needs we need to accept that we struggle with this issue too. And I would suggest that's one reason why Jesus focused on reconciliation as much as he did. One last observation. The second part of it, it says, blessed are the peacemakers, and then it has the result, for they shall be called the children of God. I want to suggest to us, don't think of the word called in the sense of labeled or titled, because the original Greek word kaleho means not so much called as called out, chosen. There's a pretty strong element here of God's sovereignty in that being a peacemaker is not a work. Being a peacemaker is a calling. It is a descriptor of a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ. We seek to make peace between people not because it earns our favor with God, but because we have received God's unmerited favor ourselves through his only begotten son. Peacemakers are blessed because they have received Jesus as their savior. This is the kind of biblical peacemaking that I would suggest to us Jesus is talking about. And in the years ahead here at First Union, may we all seek to be peacemakers. And the reason why is it was Jesus himself who said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. And as the children of God, who are we to question what God has said? So with that in mind, will you please pray with me?